You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's reading is out of Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Now came the time, now came <clears throat> now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, Nope, no. Uh, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke blessings, God, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to the people and forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. Uh, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We do declare now that we need you. We need you in this hour. We need you in this coming even minute uh, to give us light that we might, might see Jesus, that we might know him and trust him even more deeply. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this is a lower elementary week. So if you are a kindergartner through third grader and you have already checked in, you got a sticker on, you guys can head out with Mr. Adam and others. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, it's so good to be with you all tonight. If you're visiting with us this evening, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're in our third week of a many, many week uh, walk through the gospel according to Luke. Next week on Christmas Eve, on Saturday night, we'll get to the birth of Christ among the animals. And then on Sunday, Christmas Day, a week from today, glory to God in the highest, the angels and all the rest. But tonight, we're going to look at this second song, rounding out this really long chapter of chapter one. Last week, we considered Mary's song, the Magnificat, uh, just taking that Latin word, taken from her first word of my soul magnifies the Lord. Mary, we saw an unwed and likely teenaged young mother had been singled out and used by God, not because of her very high stature, but because of her very low place. 
she essentially then, we saw, become a prophet of God, overflowing with joy as she sees and reflects on the economy of heaven, that the proud are humbled and scattered, and the weak are, and the humble are then elevated and drawn near to the Lord. Well, this week we're going to consider Zechariah's song, also known as the Benedictus, uh, because of this word uh, that he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, this first word, Latin word of blessed, uh, eggs benedict just means blessed eggs, now you know, or benedict cumberbatch means blessed cumberbatch. Uh, anyway, blessed, this, we're all thinking about, or what he is thinking about is blessing, blessing God and receiving blessing. Last week, we saw in her miraculous pregnancy, Mary went to visit her elderly cousin Elizabeth, who herself was in the midst of a miraculous pregnancy. Like Mary, we saw two weeks ago, the angel Gabriel had come to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, in the temple to tell him that Elizabeth would conceive a son who would then prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. The angel told this old man, Zechariah, that this baby's name should be called John. So we're just going to jump straight into this narrative section. We're going to look at all of this in one chunk and then divide the Benedictus, the song of Zechariah, into four smaller blocks. But everything in this entire section is actually about God keeping promises. So we're going to look, look at this at five different promises, five sections of promise. The promise of Gabriel, the promise of David, the promise of Abraham, the promise of John, and the promise of a sunrise. Uh, so... First of all, the promise of Gabriel. What did Gabriel promise? Unlike Mary, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are in their twilight years. They had struggled through decades of infertility and the accompanying social stigma, which saw barrenness as perhaps God withholding his blessing. So when Gabriel tells Zechariah that perhaps like Abraham and Sarah of old, they will have a child in their old age, Zechariah, we saw, uh, respond almost indignantly. He kind of implied in verse 18 of chapter 1, like, how shall I know that what you are saying is actually true? In this short question, it might even seem that Zechariah had given up on the idea that God loved him, that God would provide for him. We can almost imagine him screaming externally or even internally in the years before that you haven't provided in the past 50 years or so. Why should I think that you'll provide for me now? So in what initially seemed to be a cold response, Gabriel like, rendered Zechariah speechless, unable to speak throughout the entire pregnancy of his wife, which now we've seen obviously happen. Throughout the entire time that Mary was with him, about six months, throughout the time when she arrived and then responded with her unbelievable song of praise, maybe Zechariah was just sitting there listening to her with tears in his eyes of agreement tears in his eyes of praise to God, but being unable to respond with speech to the words that were coming out of her mouth. Because God had provided. God has always been good, even if, it, even if God didn't give Zechariah, didn't give Elizabeth what they wanted. He had always been faithful to his promises, faithful to his people. He had been faithful to them to be their God, even beyond what he might give them. But he had now given them a baby. And the elderly Zechariah had had nine months to watch the promises of God grow, to mature, to even become visible in his elderly wife's 
womb, and then finally now come to fulfillment. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And then Luke goes on to tell us that on the eighth day after Elizabeth has the baby, when the whole community has gathered around, both for the baby's circumcision and also for like this communal naming ceremony, the time when they would all hear what he was to be called, Elizabeth says that his name is to be called, or he's to be called John. And presumably, like, the people kind of all stop down. Kind of like when you get a baby announcement uh, in the mail and you see that your friends or your younger niece or nephew or something has decided to name their child Cloud or Carpet or something, and you're like, great, that is wonderful and sweet. Wonderful. John, the, the people here are like, wait, what? You're naming him what? What now? John. John's not a family name. This is completely breaking from tradition. They kind of assumed, Luke tells us, that he was to be named Zechariah after his father. But Zechariah writes on a tablet, like, affirming his wife, saying, no, no, he is actually to be called John. She's not just doing her own thing. Presumably, he'd already written on the tablet what Gabriel had told him to Elizabeth, that an angel told me that we are to name this child John. So his faith in the Lord has actually prompted Zechariah into action here to defend his wife and to also say, yes, we're doing what heaven told us to, even to do something socially weird. And immediately his speech returns. Perhaps in a later scene of Acts, we're supposed to remember something like this. When Paul lost his sight on the road to Damascus, a time in which he is driven to humility, when God uses the loss of a sense to bring even greater faith, to bring even greater ultimate joy. And when Zechariah's speech returns, the people are struck with fear. Fear of the Lord. They ask in their hearts, what is going on? They ask in their hearts, what then shall this child be? What is happening? Something miraculous is going on with this baby. What is this child to be? And the Benedictus, the following song of Zechariah, is the answer to that question. After nine months of silence, this incredible piece of song and poetry just comes pouring out, overflowing out of Zechariah's mouth. He hasn't been able to speak for so long, and now it's, here it is. Praise. This song, like Mary's Magnificat before it, is an overflow of praise and joy, as well as deep, deep meditation on the well of the Old Testament scriptures. So he gets into it. Let's get into it. First of all, the promise of David. Zechariah says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah, pretty clearly here, is reflecting not merely on the birth of his own son, but on the pregnancy of Mary, who has been visiting with him. And like Mary last week, he seems to be looking into the future and talking about things uh, in the future, about things in the future, in the past tense, talking about the present and the future. All of his tenses are just messed up. He's up on the mountaintop and like is seeing through time, and he is seeing now the breaking in kingdom of God what it's going to actually look like, what it does actually look like. He says God has visited us and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. This horn of salvation is all over the Old Testament, both in the Psalms, both in Hannah's song that we saw Mary referencing in 1 Samuel 2. 
It's not a horn like you might blow. It's like an instrument, a horn like announcing salvation or something like that. But it's like a bull or an ox actually becomes dangerous, super dangerous when it has horns. David writes in a couple of places, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He knows and trusts God as his shield, his defense, and he knows him as his offense, his horn of salvation that will scatter and even destroy the enemies. This is what Zechariah is reflecting on, that God will save his people from his enemies because he has raised up a new, for lack of a better word, a new weapon. But at this point, we don't really know what God has, Zechariah's language, what God has redeemed or saved his people from. In bringing up David, Zechariah is saying that God is going to save people from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So it appears that Zechariah might be thinking that God is about to restore Israel to its like rightful place of former political and military power. He's bringing up David to the place of David's reign and rule. In David's time, nobody messed with Israel. And if they did, they paid the price. So maybe Zechariah, right off the bat, in responding to God, is saying, now, finally, God is going to bring a military leader like David who will finally kick out the Romans as our overlords, and he will humiliate them on their way out. We're going to swing back around in just a minute to see that's not at all what Zechariah is thinking. But for now, is it just that David is a military leader? Why is he bringing up David? Just the military power? Why is he, like so many other Old Testament prophets, so concerned with David? Many centuries prior to this, God had made a promise to David, a covenant. He promised that a descendant of David would rule on the throne of God's kingdom forever. A descendant of David would rule on the throne of God forever. Now we have two options for that promise to be true. Either there would be like an uninterrupted line of succession where a descendant of David would always be Israel's king now and forever. But Zechariah knows that that can't be right because there is no Davidic king in Israel now. There hasn't been a forever David king in Israel. So the other option is that a singular descendant of David would then rule on the throne forever. Not descendants forever, but a forever descendant. The second option seems to be what most of the prophets saw coming before Zechariah. In nearly every prophet, you'll read about David. You even, we even heard about a shoot or a root of Jesse in Isaiah 11. Who is David's father? Jesse. Anytime you hear about Jesse or David, it is looking forward to a forever David king, a future David, a son of David, which will come to reign in finality. And all of these old, long, this long line of prophets that are looking forward to this future event, now Zechariah is saying, it's here. The present is now. This horn of salvation, this son of David, is about to be born. He may not have heard Gabriel's announcement to Mary, but he would have undoubtedly agreed with the angel, Gabriel, who had told Mary in verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He is a forever David-like king that is here. 
the king and his restored kingdom is now just over the horizon, and Zechariah cannot believe that he is about to see it. On Saturday and on Sunday, we're going to see the spotlight even center more on Bethlehem, the city of David, and even more in chapter 2. The promises of God, the promise of David will be kept, and it is here. So, having now brought up David, Zechariah then reflects on a second massive promise made throughout the Old Testament narrative. Secondly, the promise of Abraham. Picking back up a little bit in verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. Now, reading about Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, about this elderly couple who, were, who conceived with a miraculously promised child, did not first cause us to think of Abraham and Sarah. Now this should do it. Zechariah brings up the covenant and the oath that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. And that, now, God is actively remembering that oath, that covenant. Something new is happening here. But what is that oath? What is that covenant? In ancient covenant-making rituals, if I and you were entering into some agreement, the two parties would slaughter an animal. And they would put half of the animal on one side and the other half of the animal on on the other side. And then you and I, we would hold hands and we would walk through the bloody carcasses of these two animals. The gruesome imagery being that if either of us fail to keep our end of the covenant, may we end up like this. Well, as God is making his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he has Abraham slaughter many animals. And God's end of the promise will be peace and blessing for Abraham. And Abraham's end of the promise will be to walk before the Lord and to be blameless. But then, before the two parties walk through these slaughtered animals, God does a crazy thing. He puts Abraham to sleep, and God then alone goes through, walks through the bloody carcasses. The implication being that if either one of us fail to keep our end of the agreement, I alone will pay the price. I will keep both ends of the covenant. And so one scholar of the so-called Abrahamic covenant says, think of it, almighty God walking barefoot through a pool of blood. The thought of a human being doing that, to say the least, is unpleasant. Yet God, in all his power and majesty, expressed his love that personally. By participating in that traditional Near Eastern covenant-making ceremony, he made it unavoidably clear to the people of that time place and culture what he intended to do, which is what? I love you so much, Abraham, God was saying, and I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son Jesus in Genesis 15. Abraham's descendants would absolutely not keep their end of the covenant. They would not receive the temporary, temporal blessing of a land and of safe and secure dwelling with God. But this covenant, 
Genesis 15, this covenant of death, which would bring eternal blessing to all the nations of the world, is one that Zechariah, now here in Luke 1, is, has top of mind. He's, it's like he is imagining Abraham in Genesis, Genesis 15 here with his pregnant wife and her pregnant younger cousin. What in the world? Zechariah realizes that something new is happening. Aslan is on the move. So the, it, the, the snow and the ice is beginning to melt. These old covenant promises are pregnant with the coming new covenant realities of Jesus, ready to give birth to their full and final fulfillment. Now, Zechariah likely doesn't know quite how all of this is going to happen. He's likely thinking about Jeremiah 31 that Kyle prayed us through earlier of thinking about a time in which our sins might be forgiven and the law might be written on our heart. Maybe Zechariah doesn't quite know how all of that's going to play out, but he absolutely believes that the baby in Mary's womb will be the fulfillment of every promise that God has made in the Old Testament, which is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. What in the world does that mean? Here's where the rubber begins to meet the road for us. Perhaps you might be thinking, all right, yeah, Sherman, this uh, theology lesson, this uh, march through the Old Testament is very interesting. David, Abraham, so what? What does any of this have to do with my life today? If Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises, if all of the promises of God find their yes in him, promises on which Abraham banked his entire life, God makes promises to you as well. And these promises find their yes in Jesus as well. God may not have taken you out to look at the night sky, telling you to count the stars, telling you that you will have as many descendants as the stars, telling you that you might have a whole nation come from you or something like this, very practically like that. And yet he has undoubtedly made you very practical promises as well. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will be with you always even unto the end of the age. If you are a Christian, perhaps who is even remotely familiar with the Bible, perhaps you might have even tuned out a little bit over the last minute or so. Yeah, 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 I, I've, I've heard all those. I even have many of those memorized. I know those, thank you very much. Perhaps you, like Zechariah, might have even grown cynical of those promises cynical of God's care, his love, 
even his presence in your life. Here's what I think all of us need to think on and reflect on in Zechariah's joyful and overwhelmed response. Blessed be the Lord God, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Sometimes it's hard to believe that God is there, believe that God does love me. Do you want to know how you know God loves you? That Jesus did not stay in the comfort of heaven, but was born amongst animals. And that Jesus did not stay in the comfort of his mother and his father's house, but that he went out to teach and to heal. That Jesus, most of all, in becoming flesh, God the Son, taking on humanity, he actually now had a head on which he could hold a crown of thorns. Never before. He had a back on which he could receive whip lashes. He had hands and feet which could be pierced with nails. He had a torso which could be lanced with a spear. That's how you know that God loves you and cares for you. That if God has kept the hardest promise of all, that being born to die, because Abraham and you and I have not kept our end of the covenant deal before the Lord, he has said, I will pay the price. I and I alone. And if he has done that in bringing redemption and salvation to his people, then all of these other relatively minor promises, you know, just to give you peace, to give you the ability to respond in obedience and in holiness, to respond like Abraham in faith to the promises of God, to know the love of God. These are very easy promises for God to fulfill and to keep. He will keep them. All of the promises of God find their yes, their amen, their truly, truly in Jesus. And this is what Zechariah is reflecting on. God is keeping his promises. But after reflecting on the promises of God and of the coming of Christ, this joyful old man turns his attention to the promises that God has made to his son, John. So just in case that we were still thinking that Zechariah is primarily concerned with perhaps like military or political power for Israel, now, here we go, the promise of John. If we can imagine in this first half of the song, Zechariah is praising God, offering blessings to the heavens, just praising him for who he is, maybe even looking over at his wife's young cousin Mary. He now, perhaps with tears in his eyes, looks down at his weak old baby son on the table. He puts his hands on him and he says in verse 76, and you child, you will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. 30 or so years later from this moment, the grown-up John, as we will later come to know him as John the Baptist, will be enormously famous. Before Jesus has any sort of reputation, all of Jerusalem, all of the entire region is going out to hear John preach. He is an absolute top celebrity. Everyone knows him. But this child, this baby John, will then eventually say, I must decrease, that he, Jesus, might increase. 
He understands his role, his celebrity role, as a ministry of preparing and then pointing to Jesus. That despite his fame, once it's time for his cousin, Jesus, to walk onto the stage, John backs up. He backs up and he even like grabs the spotlight and turns it on Jesus. Zechariah understands that now in his son's very first week of life. He nestles one little sentence right in the middle of reflecting on the glories of God in Christ to then bless his son for his coming role of preparing the people for Christ, for preparing the people for the horn of salvation. In verse 77, Zechariah finally makes clear what kind of salvation he has been meaning all along in this song. That his son John's ministry would be about giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The people at the time were looking for a David-like king who would restore Israel to political prominence, perhaps a social or a political or a military salvation. And so John the Baptist would later appear on the scene dressed like an old-school prophet of God to tell and prepare the people for the kind of the king and the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. He would go out into the wilderness and he would call for the people to repent of their sins. The kind of deliverance that they needed most wasn't necessarily deliverance from Rome. It wasn't necessarily deliverance from some imposing culture or military or foreign power. But the kind of salvation they most needed was a salvation from their own hearts, from the wrath of God against their sin, a salvation from sin, from spiritual bondage of false worship, of self-worship. John was out doing all of the hard soil work in preparation for then Christ the sower to start throwing the seed. But most of the people in John's day didn't necessarily want to hear this kind of preaching. They didn't even necessarily want at all that kind of kingdom. But if we're honest, though, we aren't all that different. We are not all that different than the people to whom John would later preach, are we? We were often, if not usually, very wrong about the kind of Savior that we want, very wrong about the kind of Savior that we need. We hear that Jesus has come to save us from sin and save us to God, our greatest problem and the very greatest possible solution, and yet we still think, yeah, that's nice. Isn't that nice? That's very sweet, isn't it? But what I really want is fill in the blank. Yes, salvation from sin, forgiveness of sin, yes, but what I really need to be happy, what I really need to be content in this life is this God. Not what you have said I need most. Perhaps Zechariah had struggled and cried out for four or five decades because he didn't have a child. He didn't have a baby. No doubt a very real and difficult, experienced reality in he and his wife's life. Perhaps before the angel had come to him, Zechariah would have said, God, if I only had a child, then I could have joy then my life would have the settled and rooted meaning that I've been lacking. Now, God would be both loving and good, whether he gives Zechariah and Elizabeth what they thought they needed. But where Zechariah can now rejoice, having experienced a whole lifetime of this, is that this baby boy that he had thought he needed and wanted most, he has actually reminded him and taught him what he most needs. Forgiveness 
salvation for his very lack of faith. We are just as short-sighted, just as self-deceived as Israel in John's day, and we need to hear John's father's song just as much today. Augustine once said, the Son of God became Son of Man, so sons of men could become sons of God. Work that through logically. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. Jesus brings salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins. And one of the promises of God that finds their yes in Christ is this. 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Are you trusting in the blood of Christ to bring you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? I pray that this Christmas season, the day that we celebrate Jesus' birth one week from today, might be also the day that we might celebrate your second birth. It's been said that Jesus, Jesus was born once so that we could be born twice. The day of a second birth, of being born to God as his son or daughter through the work of Christ on your behalf. But not that we might just have our sins forgiven and then move on from our lives like some kind of cosmic spiritual do-over, but that God would, through this new covenant of Christ, bind himself to us, and we might be bound to him. The covenant about to be birthed in the city of David, the fulfillment of the law and all of the promises made to Abraham, that God might covenant himself to you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Individual human beings, God, the creator of the universe, calling out people by name to you, that he might bind himself to you through the blood of Christ and to a, not just individuals, but to a people that we might live and love him with all of our hearts, but also love one another for eternity. A few of us were hanging out on Thursday night talking about covenant and all these different old and new covenants and stuff, and Skylar was just reflecting on how easy it is in our lives to just be so casual, to live so indifferently that we live in covenant with Almighty God. What a high calling each and every day of our life then becomes. Something that Abraham and Moses and David could have only dreamed about of living in a new covenant reality of peace with God, of having God dwell within us, to be called sons and daughters of God. What a gift each and every day of our life then becomes of the forgiveness of sins, of the life of the Spirit of being united to Jesus, of life with and in his people. What a gift, what a calling to live in covenant with God. And this is just what Jesus is about to get going throughout the rest of this book. But after spending just a minute minute on his own son, Zechariah's attention turns fully back to Mary's son. So lastly now, the promise of the S-U-N son. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I told you that this song is a reflection of the promises of God in the Old Testament all throughout. And this last verse is one of the thickest and greatest parts. Two weeks ago, we saw Gabriel quoting Malachi 4 to John or to Zechariah. 
that in the last few verses of the Old Testament, the last time that God had spoken to his people before 400 years of silence, Gabriel had told Zechariah that John would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. John's preaching in the accompanying work of the Spirit would cause families to love each other, which we all know is a miracle. And Malachi is what, if Malachi is what Gabriel is thinking about, or what he's quoting to Zechariah when he first came to him, we know that Malachi must have just been like tumbling around in Zechariah's brain and his thoughts and his heart over the past nine months, which is exactly then why he talks about a sunrise from on high. It is more than just a whoa, Zechariah, that is a super deep metaphor. That is awesome. No, Zechariah understands that Malachi 4.2 is happening. Where Malachi, God says through Malachi, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And so the actual S-U-N son of Malachi 4 is coming. The Lord, who elsewhere in Malachi will come to his temple and to dwell with his people in peace, is now here. This is big and weighty theological stuff. And so while we can't give Zechariah credit for the deep metaphor, it actually is unbelievably deep. There are few things in life that are more disorienting or terrifying than utter darkness. And the picture that Zechariah gives us here in verse 79 is one of travelers who actually decide that it is better to sit down than to move any further. They don't know which way to go. And I can't imagine being lost in the woods in utter darkness. Your flashlight has run out of batteries. It is a cloudy night. There is no moon. There is no stars. You come to the realization that it would be better to sit and wait. Not moving is better than walking in the wrong direction. Perhaps you're beginning to lose hope. The sun is never going to rise. I'm going to be lost here in the darkness forever. And then you see that first glimmer of the sun rays beginning to peek over the horizon. A horizon that just seconds before you, would, you couldn't even find the horizon because it is utter darkness. And then within just a few minutes, the sun shows you that the path was just perhaps a few feet away. You were very close. And now you can see it. And so in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we sing this, Hail the Son of Righteousness. The S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in its wings. Many well-meaning people often change what they think is a typo of S-U-N to S-O-N. The Son of Righteousness. Jesus the Son, he is here. But that smudges out the Malachi 4, the Luke 1 Benedictus deepness of a sun rising over a dark horizon with healing and light and warmth. Zechariah, though still in darkness, is now like up on his tiptoes, seeing if he can just get over the horizon to see the sun coming up, just peeking over that he might see. The sun, which will bring light and life, or even as Jesus would later say of himself in John 8, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Apart from the light of the sunrise of Christ, the path to peace The path to God is completely hidden. Trying to find the path apart from his light is just making our search for peace even worse. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we'd agree. But because of Christmas, the sunlight of his kingdom is shining brightly. The darkness is sometimes easy, and we like it here. We like it in the dark, but God is beckoning us to come outside. With the cross as the door into the world outside of light, 
into peace. You guys have Nathan preaching bingo cards. Here's a second Chronicles of Narnia reference for you. B32. At the, this is a thing. Some of you have a bingo cards, not physically, but here, here it is. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, after looking through the magical door of a stable and into the world in which they were created to enjoy, Queen Lucy says this, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. A stable has something inside it that is bigger than the whole world. At Christmas, the infinite God of heaven took on finite baby flesh so that he could live for our righteousness and die for our sin. Do you know this? Can you sing with joy and hope like Zechariah in faith in the promises of God? I pray you would. Next week, we're going to get to this stable of magic, the place where heaven and earth meet, the most important moment in the history of the earth. So I pray that you'll actually join us on Saturday night. Join us on Sunday for the magic, for the worship. Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have indeed kept your promises, that you have kept your promises in your Son, that all of your promises find their final yes, the stamp of your faithfulness in Jesus, who has come to us, who has lived for us, who has rescued us, who has died for us, has been raised to new life for us, and has been seated now at your right hand. Lord Jesus, we want to believe. Increase our faith. If you need to give us periods of silence, if you need to give us periods of discipline, do it. That we might trust you more. That we might have the joy in which we are lacking today. And so, Lord Jesus, we welcome you. We welcome you into our lives, into our world, and we hope and long for even now your second coming in which you will make all things new, all things right. And all tears will be wiped away forever, all evil done for, and all of our sin vanquished forever. And we pray and long for that day. And so we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.